We are reading on these Sunday mornings in the book of the Acts of the Apostles and in the second great missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, and we have come this morning to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 11. Acts 18, verses 1 through 11, we are not reading the whole account of Paul's visit to Corinth. I hope to return to it on a future Sunday morning. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household, household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night... The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Thanks be to God once more for this passage of his own inspired and infallible word. Now, we have come on this Sunday morning to the 18th chapter of the book of Acts in the second great missionary journey of the Apostle Paul as that journey steadily draws to its conclusion. And from the great city of Athens, where we have seen on recent Sunday mornings, the apostle had a very remarkable ministry. He has arrived now in Corinth, the great capital city of southern Greece. It was a meeting place of many nations, and it was a city whose port was famous over the whole of the ancient world, a city situated, you may be interested to know, on a narrow neck of land known as an isthmus, and the trade from the eastern lands was brought into that port on the eastern side of Corinth and transported overland to a port on the western side of Corinth and hence to the remainder of its journey across the Adriatic into Italy and Rome. And very much of the trade of the East, therefore, passed through the great city of Corinth. It was a city of strategic importance. 
And what is evident, as we are going to see probably in two Sundays hence, is that the Apostle Paul must have seen its strategic location. And immediately he realized that if trade could radiate out to many lands from Corinth, so could the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul came to Corinth. Now, on this particular Sunday morning, I want us to concentrate not so much on what happened in the Apostles' mission to this great heathen and pagan city of Corinth, but what happened in the Apostles' personal life. And I want us to do this for a particular reason today, because I discern that some of our number perhaps are discouraged and perturbed about a number of things. And this has come to my attention recently. The way that the world is handling you, for instance, and the rough time that it is giving you, as I mentioned in one of my earlier prayers. Perhaps you're concerned about the condition of the Christian church today, where it seems so difficult in many ways for the gospel to spread effectively. There is so much opposition There is so much indifference to it. There are so many obstacles that you as a Christian man or woman, boy or girl, are meeting as you seek to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a society that was so remarkably like Corinth, given over to paganism and to idolatry. Now, it's quite remarkable in this passage, although we're not told so, in so many words, in Acts 18, that the Apostle Paul came to begin his ministry with a spirit and a feeling just like that. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that as he arrived in this great city, he was feeling far from strong. I came to you, he said, in weakness and in fear and in great trembling. And it is a truly remarkable reference to the apostle who seems so dauntless in many other ways and so able to live above every obstacle that was in his way and triumphantly to preach the gospel. Why did he feel like this at Corinth? We need to explore it. And much more important than that, I suggest to you, how did the Lord deal with him and recover him out of this discouragement and begin to encourage him again? And I ask these questions, beloved, because some of you have been there and perhaps are there this morning. And in seeing how the apostle felt and how the Lord ministered to him, we may see still how the Lord ministers to us and restores our souls, as it were, when we walk in the midst of dry places. Are you defeated and disappointed this morning? Are you feeling weak and helpless, lonely and forsaken, depressed, out of sorts in your Christian life? This is the message I believe that we need from this great chapter that is before us today. Now, there are simply two things that I want to do with you this morning, and the first is to look at the apostle's condition, and the second is to look, as I said, at the Lord's remedy for that condition. 
Now look with me, if you will, first of all, at the apostle's condition. In verse 1, as he arrives at the city and also reflected, I should say, in verses 9 and 10, but particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 and following. Now you see, as I said to you a moment ago, what Paul himself tells us about arriving in Corinth is very interesting. It's one of the fairly rare autobiographical uh, reflections that he gives of himself in his epistles. He was evidently strongly perturbed and under great stress as he came to Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, I resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But then having given us an indication of his resolve, he says to us, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now you do have an indication of that, I suggest to you, in Acts 18, in verse 9, when one night we are told the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And visions do not happen gratuitously, not even for the apostles. They happen when there is a real need that the Lord can only meet in that particular and remarkable way. And you notice the need there in verse 9 was that the apostle was evidently afraid. And he was evidently afraid to keep on with his ministry. He had come almost, we might say, to a dead stop. Because the word that follows in the vision is that the apostle is to keep on speaking and not to be silent. And then the Lord, you notice, gives the reason for that command. But the condition of the apostle evidently merited a vision in the night when he both saw in some sense the Lord Jesus and heard the Lord Jesus speak directly to him. And you see what I'm saying to you then? That here is a man who is spiritually out of sorts. Here is a man who has a very definite and urgent need. A man who is in great weakness bodily, who is in great fear mentally and even spiritually. Of course this is a fear of God himself and a fear that he should not be found sufficient for the great ministry committed to him. But it's also a particular fear that he had as he came into this great pagan city of Corinth that he would not be able to continue exercising his great apostolic ministry as heretofore. Now the question, beloved, that we need to ask is a very important one. What caused this condition of the apostle's heart and mind? And I want to suggest to you three factors that evidently caused it. Why did Paul feel this way? And the answer, first of all, is evidently the sheer cost of biblical ministry. Now let me repeat that again. The sheer cost of biblical ministry. And I want to challenge you people in the pews this morning, and I love you dearly in the Lord, but I want to challenge you. Do you always realize the cost of biblical ministry? We often forget 
what it does cost to bring the gospel to people and to expound the scriptures. And if you have ever talked to a missionary who has returned from a faithful period of service on the mission field, it may be in Africa or India or wherever it might be, and that person has been out there with his family for a term of three or four years, if that man or that woman has been functioning as they should, you will find that they come back in a state of exhaustion that is not only bodily, beloved, but is also spiritual as well. And you can ask any faithful pastor concerning that aspect of the cost of biblical ministry, and he will tell you the same thing, that every time the word is preached, every time there is faithful pastoral visitation where biblical counsel is being given. It is as though there is energy passing out. And just as Jesus, we are told in the Gospels, knew that something had passed out of him when he healed the sick and ministered the word, so it continues to be the cost that servants of God still bear today. There is a spiritual cost. Now think about this. It's at the physical level. Where did this man, the Apostle Paul, come from? He came from city after city in which he had been persecuted and thrown out of the city and despised and reviled and his message rejected by the Jews and hard and bitter things said of him. And there is a physical cost. You do not serve God in his kingdom without cost at this level. And there is mental exertion in that physical cost. As you reason, as you expound the scriptures, as you explain and open up the word of God, it is as though spiritual energy goes out from the servant of God and it needs to be replaced. He feels drained, as I often feel drained as I leave this pulpit Sunday morning or Sunday evening. And it is in direct fulfillment, surely, of the word of Jesus in John chapter 11. But except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, Jesus said, it brings forth much fruit. And you see, it is that hidden demand of dying in the cause of the gospel that makes it so costly to be in the service of Christ. You remember how the apostle put that cost as he wrote to the Galatians. He said, my dear children, I am in travail again for you, but Christ might be formed in you, you who have been led astray by false teachers. Or how writing to the Philippians, he reminded them of the agony in which he engaged in his ministry for them. An agony which he says in Philippians 1 verse 30, they are now entering into as they bear witness to Christ. The sheer cost of biblical ministry, beaten thrown out of the cities, alone in Athens, a man who stood up to the intellectuals of the age, 
A man who inwardly, as we have seen, was broken up inside himself when he saw the city wholly given over to idolatry. You cannot feel this way and minister this way without tremendous personal cost, the cost of biblical ministry. Now, that's why Paul felt as he did, but there was a second reason. And it is the reason of Corinthian pride. Now, if you have read, as I'm sure you have, the first and second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, you come very quickly to one conclusion, that the Corinthians, of all the people that Paul ministered to in his wide-ranging ministry, they were a very proud and self-sufficient lot. Everywhere you read in those epistles, and especially the second one of them, their intellectual arrogance. They criticized Paul upside down and inside out, didn't they? His speech was weak and contemptible. His very personal appearance they took objection to. And they found every conceivable fault in their carnality. And it comes from the background of a city that was very proud of itself and its accomplishments. And it may interest you to know that in the year 46 BC, the city was rebuilt almost from scratch by Julius Caesar, the famous Roman emperor, and it became one of the most beautiful cities of the ancient world with great political prestige as it became the capital city of southern Greece, known as Achaia. And as I say, as you read the Corinthian epistles, you find that Paul was very conscious he did not come to minister in Corinth with the eloquence and the polish that they were used to from their orators that were trained in the schools, in elocution and exhortation and so on. And he told them that his gospel would be indeed foolishness to them as they listened to him, and that he could not reason with them with the special learning and persuasive words of men's wisdom. And he must have felt this as he came to Corinth. But the third factor, you see, that made this condition what it was in the apostle's life was that here was a city given over to immorality. And in those days, Corinth was notorious for its loose living. It was a city, we could say in a sense, given to the dedication of sex. And in a remarkable way, it reflects the society we're living in today, as you would readily realize. The sexual promiscuity of this city was proverbial, so that there was a phrase in Greek to Corinthianize. And if you said that of anyone... You meant that that person had a very low and loose standard of morals indeed. And it became a byword in the world in which Paul lived for immorality. And in the city was the great temple of the goddess Aphrodite. The Romans called her Venus. And she was the goddess of sex. And every night in Corinth, several thousand of her female slaves roamed the city street as prostitutes, fulfilling the desires of the many international sailors that flocked into that great seaport of Corinth. 
and into this background of sordidity and immorality the apostle came. It was, beloved, a veritable Gomorrah. And he brought the gospel and was conscious of his own bodily weakness in the face of immorality and Corinthian pride and being made weak by the sheer cost of ministering the gospel as he came to Corinth. Now, do you see what I'm saying to you? That this is the reason why he felt this way. A price had to be paid, and he had paid it for so long but he wondered if he could face up to what was before him in this city. Do you know, many of you are here in this service this morning because some servant of Christ has been willing to bear great cost in bringing you to where you are now. And you should be thankful that that cost has been paid by such servants, in some cases not just one, but many of them in order that you might be where you are this morning in Christ and not still in the darkness of paganism. But you see, the second thing that I want to share with you this morning, and in some ways the more important one, is this. What was the Lord's remedy to this man in this condition? And remember, you may be there or are there this morning, spiritually out of sorts, cast down, depressed, perturbed in mind. And remember that here as he came to the city was a man who never came nearer in all of his ministry to losing heart than he did now, to acknowledging defeat. And if you're in doubt, read again. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. And read again what the Lord said to this man in the vision. Fear not for I have much people in this city. Now what then was the Lord's remedy to this weak and shaken man, this man who was living evidently in great poverty as he worked with his own hands there in Corinth to provide for his ministry until Timothy and Silas came with a gift to support him? What was the Lord's ministry? Well, it was a ministry, beloved, in three things. And look with me at each one of these three things. There was, first of all, a sympathetic provision for the Apostle Paul. And it's hinted at, and I want to steal out its meaning in verses 1 and 2. Do you notice how in verse 2 particularly, as he came there, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, what do we see in this? And I suggest to you, you see the sympathetic provision of the Lord for a man in great weakness and great distress. How so, you ask? Well, here is this man, suffering and much tried, but gloriously willing, still in the service of Christ. And one of his great needs is now fulfilled. Why? Enter Aquila and Priscilla, a couple that leave a very fragrant memory all through the rest of the New Testament scriptures. 
You read of them in Romans 16 as a couple who recognized the, the, the apostles' ministry and were willing to risk their lives for him. You read of them again in 2 Timothy 4, verse 19, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, as a couple greatly beloved among the Gentile churches who extended the hospitality of their home in which the church would meet. And you see what God is doing in a most remarkable way. Do you notice this couple was much traveled? They came from Pontus, which is up on the shores of the Black Sea, way north of Corinth, hundreds of miles away. From there, they had been led to Rome in Italy. And the Roman emperor, Claudius, had passed a decree banishing all Jews from Rome because of certain disturbances at that time. And so they had left Rome. They'd been forced to do so. They had no choice. And they came to Corinth, a much-traveled couple. But why had this happened? Why did they leave Pontus? Why did they go to Rome, a journey of hundreds of miles across land and ocean? Why were they driven out of Rome to go to Corinth? For one reason, God was doing it. So they could be brought to Corinth to encourage the Apostle Paul. And behind the imperial edict of the royal Caesar was the hand of God. Isn't that interesting? That they might become the lifelong companions and encouragers of the apostle in his ministry and specifically meet him in the very hour of his greatest need. And it led, as I indicated to you, to a lifelong fellowship and friendship between the apostle and Aquila and Priscilla. Now, isn't it wonderful? the sympathetic provision of the Lord. We're living, you know, in a very unsympathetic age, aren't we? Even when fellow Christians are hurting, they sometimes find it very difficult to get a Christian shoulder to weep on. But the Lord is not like that. He is full of sympathy, and anyone who touches his people touches the very apple of his eye. And I want to say to you this morning, if you have been in the condition of the apostle and are there this morning, look around because the Lord is almost certainly going to raise up for you an Aquila and Priscilla, the sympathetic provision of God. And the apostle was to prove in that very act that God is no man's debtor. Had he extended himself in a costly ministry of bringing the gospel to others, being reviled and rejected, the Lord enfolds him in loving arms and brings him to dwell with a Christian couple that restored and renewed the apostle from within. Now the second provision was this, the solemnity with which God deals with his enemies in verses 5 and 6. Look at those verses with me for a moment. They tell us that when Paul was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, they opposed and reviled him, and then something very significant happens. He shook out his garments and said to them, Very well, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. I am clear of the blood of all men. I'm no longer responsible for you. 
I will leave you and go to the Gentiles instead. Now, why do I mention this? Because, you see, this was the Lord's second provision for this much-tried man. Much of his frustration was with ministering in the synagogue in Corinth where he met only revulsion and rejection, where they blasphemed the name that was dearest to him of all the names in the universe, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Day after day, Lord's day after Lord's day as he went there, the same unbending opposition, almost with clenched fists, they opposed this man in his ministry. And beloved, there is only so much of that that a man can take and should be expected to take. And this is the point. There is a great difference between ignorance which is one thing, and we should bear with it with great patience and great grace and continue patiently to present the truth. But it is quite different to be met with outright implacable opposition that is not changing but getting worse as time passes. And especially in the face of the most convincing scriptural and apostolic testimony. And what the Lord now does is that he comes to the apostle and he indicates to Paul in his own mind that his ministry is over. In that action that has become so symbolic in the scriptures, he takes off his outer cloak and he shakes it thoroughly in front of them that not a speck of dust from that synagogue may remain on the Apostle Paul. I am through with you. I'm no longer responsible for you. And it's an action that says, you are tantamount to committing spiritual suicide. And I am leaving you, having borne the fullest testimony to you. I am clean, he says. I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Henceforth, I will go to others. Now do you see what God has done for this man? He's taken him out of that position where he is being pressured and stressed by an unbelieving and resistant people. And as you read in those verses, in to a place where there is glorious fruit, for his ministry. And isn't it a lovely touch? But no sooner has he done this than Crispus, the ruler of that synagogue that was so opposed to the gospel, believes with all his house. What a beautiful seal upon the apostle's right action in saying enough is enough. I'm leaving you now. Now the third way, and with this I'm drawing to a close, in which the Lord blessed the Apostle Paul was not only in the sympathetic provision for the Apostle's need and the solemnity of being under the gospel, but here we have the sovereignty of God in the work of the gospel. Look at verses 9 through 10. I wish I had more time to expound this for you. It's the third and in some ways the most striking way in which the Lord encouraged his much-tried servant. You see, the Lord realized that he needed encouragement over and beyond what Christian believers 
could provide for him, over and beyond even taking him out of a most difficult and implacable situation where no headway at all, it seemed, could be made. He needed something more personal and direct than that. And in a vision of the night, the Lord appeared to him in some form and said to him, Be not afraid, but speak and do not keep silence, for I have much people in this city. I am with you. No one will set on you to hurt you. I have much people in this city. Now remember, here was a man who had come to the point of saying, what is the point of going on? Have you been there? More beatings, more persecution, more rejection, more difficulty, more misunderstandings, more revilings. What is the point of going on? And in this state, the Lord said, I am in sovereign control of my own work, Paul. I know what I am doing and what I want you to do. Now, the overarching message of this vision is clear, that Jesus saw what Paul did not. Do you realize that? Jesus saw what Paul did not. Paul was looking at the opposition and the difficulties. He was looking at the immorality and the vice and the foulness of this city and the bitterness of the Jews and saying, is it ever possible that God would raise a church out of the filthy mud that constitutes the city of Corinth? And Paul's, uh, and Jesus says, do not look at these things, but look at me in the knowledge that I can see what is hidden from you. You only see the discouragement, Paul. You only see failure staring you in the face. But I see the people that I've chosen from all eternity and appointed to salvation by your being in Corinth and persevering in the ministry of the word. I cannot do it without you. And isn't it interesting that we have the doctrine of election and predestination there? It's biblical, dear friends. I have much people in this city when they haven't even yet been called by the preaching of the apostle. They're mine. And in my eternal purposes, they're going to be drawn to me. And it's not the cold doctrine of election, as it's sometimes called, and of course it isn't cold at all, properly understood, that Jesus uses to encourage Paul, but it's the doctrine of election enfleshed. Living warm people is what Jesus brings to the attention of the apostle. I have people in this city chosen by me from all eternity to be mine, and I need you there in spite of it all. God's sovereignty in the work of the gospel. Beloved, as I summarize these things before you and as I close, what a blessed way 
of reassurance. You look around this great city of Jacksonville today and you may see all the difficulties, the unutterable vileness of human nature left to itself. The filth, the uncleanness, the lasciviousness, the perversion that increasingly characterizes our whole country. And you throw up your hands in despair and you say, Lord, I feel I'm a failure. May he come to you in these ways of reassurance as he did to the apostle with a sympathetic provision of Christian friends that come to you in the very hour of need with the strength that you need. As necessary, reminding you of the solemnity of being under the gospel, that we are not called in every circumstance to go on and on and on when we are plowing upon the rock. And God graciously and solemnly withdraws us from that ministry for our protection as well as judgment upon those who have rejected the message and in his sovereignty in coming to us, not by a vision in these days, we do not need it, but by the scriptures and the promises of God reassuring us that in the midst of a society that is homosexual and given to adultery and dishonesty and drunkenness and reviling and all the sins of the world, I need you to be your best for me in the very place that you have been put. Well, we have such a God, beloved, and how comforting, how reassuring, how very uplifting this is. And oh, may you, by God's grace, consider these things and take a hold of yourself and realize that what the church needs today and needs so urgently is to have renewed confidence in the ability of God to do his own work in his own way as we pray. Our gracious Father, we're thankful for this passage and pray that its message may be blessed indeed to all our hearts to the glory of your great name. Amen.